And we're back. Yes, yes. I was just in the middle of asking a question, but I'll save the question. Yeah. And we are in the same week of the new Captain Marvel trailer. So I'm feeling very full of Lady Power right now. Yeah, you know... My timeline has been uh, full of Brie Larson uh, getting up in slow motion and the feed and the fade from her to a hero, which I quite enjoy. Uh, apparently some, not all men, hashtag not all men, on the internet aren't thrilled with the fact that she doesn't smile in the trailer. Are you fucking kidding me? And then some adorable lady nerd uh, then modded all of the men's uh, posters to put like weird rictus grins on their faces to show how fucking crazy that would look. I can't even... Because the hero doesn't smile. Loki smiles. Killmonger smiles. Your hero is supposed to look... You know, like they have the weight of the world on their shoulders. Like they're serious. Like they're about to like do some shit. But regardless, I mean, every woman, well, I can't speak for every woman, but I remember when I was young, so many men passing me in the street and saying, smile. Like, what is it to you whether I smile or not? It's like men are owed like a pleasant woman. Heaven forbid they should have to see a woman who isn't, who doesn't have like a pleasure. I'm not even making words anymore. Yeah. That doesn't have... A look of contemplation and and uh, help me out. With I the think words. you're. I think you're being. I'm getting okay. I'm getting all. Hyped I think up. you're going too far into it. I think it's just. Nope, I'm not. If we're not smiling, our mouths aren't open, and I think they like our mouths open. No, but I think men don't want to have to deal with women's emotions. So a smiling woman is a passive woman. That's true. That's a, a happy little woman at home. Ugh, I'm so annoyed now. Okay, so, no, so now... the trailer. All right, so now I'm all mad. The trailer was great. Yes. I love the de-aging on uh, both uh, Sam Jackson and... and uh, yeah. Yep. Clark Craig. Yep. I would 100% smash uh, that version of Coulson. Oh, I wouldn't. He doesn't do anything for me. He still, he, he still has hairline issues. He gave... Yeah, they adjusted his hairline <clears throat> in that. They gave like him a very kind of like young Joe Biden vibe. If you ever have seen pictures on the internet of young Joe Biden. So you're saying that you would like to fornicate with young Joe Biden? If, I'm going to show you a picture in the break of young I, Joe Biden. I have you seen, will too. I have seen young Joe Biden actually. Yeah. But I didn't... I wasn't hot for him. But, you know, that's... Different strokes. <laughs> let's hope so. Also, uh, during my TIFF breaks, I finally watched Killing Eve. Yes. All of it. Because oh, yeah. it's not like it was enough. It's only, to, there's to, only eight episodes, right? Yeah, I, but it's still crazy that in a week where I took off work to watch over 25 movies, in my breaks I watched all of a TV show. But it's it, like not light fair. But it's hard not to watch it. It's so enjoyable. I see, I disagree. I think it is light fair. It's so, it's so, it gets... It's murderous, and there's a lot of, you know, sociopathy on display, but it's also just a delight. It is a delight. I mean, I love um, Jodie Comer is, I mean, Sandra O is Sandra O. We love her. Sandra O, as described in the show, was she an Asian woman with amazing hair? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I was telling you, but yeah, her her hair is is a plot point. It's a character on the show. Yep. It's like New York and Sex in the City. But then when you see why the hair... Mean something to Villanelle? Oh, yeah. Later, you're like, oh, now I get yeah. why that hair is uh, something that she might respond to. That's her jam. Yeah, that is totally her jam. She, yeah, I, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I don't know that I want a second season, but we're going to have one. Um, so I don't know what... I, it's based on a series of novels. I don't know anything about the plot of the novels, um, nor will I uh, look up spoilers on the internet. But I hope that... They continue that they do it for the right reasons and that there actually is a story to tell uh, rather than them just saying, well, this was successful, we'll figure it out. I want them to, um, I mean, and it's, it's Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who I love, but uh, there's only been one season of Fleabag, um, and, which made her incredibly, um, like amongst a certain core of the internet, it made her incredibly popular. But she, you know, so that's six episodes. Um, but she hasn't... Um, committed to doing a second series yet. So her track record is strong, but it's based on very little. So I don't know if she has what it takes to sustain it, but let's hope so because the show was so delightful. Like even yeah. like just the lines, like where uh, Fiona Shaw is like, I saw, uh, didn't she say something about a rat drinking a can of Diet Coke? Like it's <laughs> yeah. just, it's great. Like it's just, it's very, like the, the writing is so, you can tell that's someone's unique voice. Yeah. But unlike a Joss Whedon or somebody, the characters don't all speak the same. They don't speak like the creator, but the creator's voice is all over um, the dialogue that the characters speak. But they're differentiated very, very well. 
and I'll talk about a bunch of like strong women, like the men are. Are you crying or are you running? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even from the very first shots where, you know, where uh, uh, Sandra was screaming, like it's such like the payoff <laughs> for that is incredible. Yeah. It's the introduction show. of both of those characters. Oh. And a lot of shows try to do this where they show you a character that you're supposed to know isn't entirely a good person. And I think of the introduction of Six in the Battlestar miniseries. Or oh, the, yeah, what she does to the... Yeah, yeah, or the introduction of Frank Underwood yeah. in the beginning of House of Cards. And her introduction... They do the same thing, but they do it in the most so, playful... It's so funny. It's the most playful way I've ever seen yes. that done. I really, truly enjoy it. And they do something that is so low stakes compared to those yep. other two introductions. But in a way, it... It tells you more about the character. Yeah, it tells you everything you need yeah. to know about her, about what it is that she, about who she truly is, and also who she tries to to be. Like, and all this is done without and how dialogue. hard she tries, and yeah. how many fucks she gives about sustaining yeah. that facade. But even, like for me, it's even more uh, like when you talk about the psychology of the character, you understand that at the heart of it. Like, because we always talk about like the character is like a psychopath or a sociopath. But given the way that that first scene is structured, the thing that she does is very common among people who are psychopaths or sociopaths, or uh, or on the autism spectrum, like that inability to, uh, like, like that mask that uh, that they have to wear. Like that's all in that very first scene. That's why yeah. I think it's brilliant. Like it's just it's perfect because it tells you. Who she is. It's it's pretty fantastic. Yeah. I'm amazed that she wasn't nominated for an Emmy. Me too. And I'm a little bummed that Sandra Oh didn't win. You know, but I, I didn't watch the Emmys, but I... I didn't watch them either. I only watched the Hannah Gadsby bit on YouTube after, and that was... I agree with everybody who said that was like probably the best part of the uh-huh. show, because I can't imagine any other part of the show being better than that. I hear the reparations Emmys was a good bit. Yeah, this is at the beginning of the show? I, I don't know if that was in the beginning or not. I, mean, I think it was when, like, Titus uh, Burgess and uh, K- K- Sterling K. Brown. Mm. No, there was there was, a, there was a different bit. There was, like, a recorded oh, okay. bit where Michael Che actually goes around and gives Emmys to people who should have got them back oh. in the day. Oh. Yeah. Eh. I, I, this is the first year in as long as I can remember where the Emmys have not overlapped with TIFF. Um, just the way that TIFF landed this year. It was basically a week earlier than it normally is. Um, and now the Emmys are on a Monday night and not a Sunday night. Um, but I haven't heard about the Emmys for years. And I looked at the list of winners, uh, and it included the list of nominees. And in almost every case, I was like, eh. Like, there's nobody in this, you know, except for, you know, I love Elizabeth Moss, and I think her performance is, like, without Carrie Coon in the running, yeah. Like, there's no... I don't care. I know people love The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and they seem to have, like, jizzed all over that show this year. I tried to watch it, didn't like it, but regardless, Rachel Brosnahan is nowhere near the actress that Elizabeth Moss is, full stop. Like, I think she's probably the best television actress we've ever had. She's she's basically TV Meryl. Exactly. You've never said anything more succinct or intelligent. Yes. <laughs> I'm equal parts flattered and insulted. <laughs> no, but you're right. That's exactly what she is. Like, her level, like, she's so much better than everybody else. And when you think about, like, coming off all of those years of this iconic character on Mad Men, like, Peggy was such a carefully drawn, and it's not even the way that I she was drawn. Like, it's the way that she was, like, that her point, From the ponytail in the beginning yes. to where she ended. Oh, with the cigarette in the box. Oh, my like, God. Like, in that, but every moment of it's felt true and then to move from that to move to the uh to the handmaid's tale and to like what she's doing in that show and uh, i can't watch the show i have trouble i'm stuck at uh, i think the third episode of the second season because i can't and it took me three times to watch it i can't watch it because it's too it's too much for me but i gave up in season one like it's just it i just and it's not oh the world is a is a dumpster fire because i can watch other bleak things there's just something about the way that that show is um, they're almost their production? Good. Yeah. Well, even when because I've heard some uh, behind the scenes stuff, and even um, it's hard on the production team when they film these scenes, which makes you think, yeah, like the intensity that you're feeling, like that's really the, like that's baked in. It's not like they're giggling between takes. Yeah. Um, and just one like my favorite story about Elizabeth Moss um, when somebody interviewed her, the first season um, 
and I think in, in the second season too, but in the first season, I think there were a lot more of her um, um, voiceovers. And somebody said, like, it's, so the way that she um, reacts to her voiceover, so, you know, she's in a scene, she's not speaking, but there was a voiceover. And somebody said, like, it's, it, like, it's amazing because when we're watching you on screen, it actually looks as though you're having the simultaneous thought. And she's like, well, I am. Like, I, I, uh, I remember the voiceover, so I know exactly what Offred would be feeling in this moment. So that's how, so that's how she nails it because in her mind, that voiceover is playing in her head along. It's just like she's just on another, she's on another level. Yeah, 100%. So yeah, wasn't interested in watching the Emmys. I really, I stopped watching award shows and listener, if you're an avid one, you know this, uh, back after the election because I couldn't watch uh, the people who helped give that individual free airtime. And this was basically uh, like an extended episode of SNL, uh, which was one of the collaborators in his rise. Uh, Then go on shows and then mock him like the end result of their complicit actions uh, was funny or, you know, fodder for their comedy machine. So, yeah, and with the internet now, I don't need to sit through a three-hour show to find out what the good bits are. The internet will tell me the next day, and I can watch the Hannah Gadsby bit and feel like, okay, that's cool. I can see the picture of Regina King bumping Mm. into Thandie Newton at a party as they're both holding their Emmys in their beautiful dresses and think that's all I need of that show. That and all the shots of the blackish cast in their multiple outfits throughout the evening because really they were slaying it. Absolutely. They they were all the late most of the ladies were doing different sort of shades of pink and rose or lilac at the main event and then they did other things with uh, Jennifer Lewis pulling in the rear with that fantastic Nike oh, outfit. yeah, with the Nike ensemble. Yeah, yeah, it's like, you know what? That's all I needed to see of the Emmys. That's all. Yeah, like, I barely even looked at after... Like, I, I don't care about the Emmys. So even when you see shots from the Emmys, I'm like, eh. Yeah. Like, I, it just it doesn't do anything for me, especially coming off of TIFF. Like, TIFF is, uh, to me, such a bigger deal. Yeah. Uh, you know, I get excited about seeing, um, like, Aaliyah's to do, and nobody else would know who that is. Uh, so I really get excited by seeing these like actors who literally nobody like one out of a thousand people might know who they are. Yeah, and that makes me excited. Yeah, can I see Vigo once again rocking a jean jacket as he rolls in for the second screening? Although everybody came for the second screening of Green Book. Listener, if you're ever going to bring a movie to TIFF, one way to make sure that you're at least in the running for people's choice. Bring everyone for the second screening, your your or your first public screening. If your yes. first one was a premium, yeah, bring them out. That is how you help mm-hmm. pump up the crowd reaction. I contend that Green Book would have been contender regardless, but having literally everyone there again for the second screening, that really helps because those public screening people, those are the ones that are going to vote for People's Choice, not your gala douchebags. It's the people who bring up the rear. Yep. Yeah. So. We're going to transition to our TIFF wrap-up with that segue, but I've been drinking unusually fast, so I'm going to take a little break, and we're going to be back to talk about what happened at TIFF 18, or as I like to call it, the final tour of Pierce Handling. And we're back, Mm Mm-hmm. and it's time to talk about TIFF 18. Yeah, we borrowed the lead. It was an okay year. I thought it was a pretty good year, actually. I went, with, I went in with middling expectations, and I came out pretty happy. Uh, yeah, I, um, you know, I, I mean, when I, if I do a breakdown, I probably saw, like, you know, like, half the movies I saw were really good. Three were good, and two were probably, like, well, one I have a special hate for, um, and one I was like, meh, but... Uh, um, yeah, I think all in all, and, and the ones that I saw, like I saw two, like honestly, two movies that I absolutely adored um, at the well, festival of the show. We'll get to that because yep. we want to make the listener mm-hmm. keep going for yep. a while. Yep. Uh, we'll start with the movie I like to call What I Tell Normals was a good movie. Many festivals, the movie that I most enjoy often has a lot of elements that would require many warnings if you were to be watching it on TV, as in this movie may have scenes with, you know, sexuality, Mm -hmm. violence, 
violent sex, profanity, violent sex with the use of profanity, mm-hmm. et cetera, Profane et cetera, et cetera. Yes. So when you get back to work and you have to tell somebody mm-hmm. who you do your job with what your favorite movie was, there's always that moment in your head of, if I tell them and I don't want they them to judge it, me, yeah. I can't tell somebody that I work with that I Saw the Devil was one of my favorite movies the year I saw it at TIFF because they'll think I'm really, 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 really wrong. Mm-hmm. I even met a nice gentleman at the bar. Which bar? I don't even remember if it was Roxy Bar or the Luma Bar, but one of the bars that's right near Princess of Wales. And we were talking about movies we liked at TIFF that we can't tell people that we work with that we like. And I saw the devil came up, but we had like a 20-minute conversation about it. And then both looked at each other and realized when somebody says they like that movie, you really got to be like a little worried if they're a full-on sociopath. Well, I legit don't know what this movie is. Don't watch it because it might not be your jam. You're not a Midnight Madness Vanguard kind of lady. Nah. nah. It's great. It's violent as fuck, but it's like just beautiful. Beautiful to look at. Good writing, good pacing, good everything, but like just not, it's just kind of terrible. I mean, I don't mind violence, but but good. You know know what? But anyway, so the movie that you would recommend to a normal. Yeah. um, What would that be? uh, It would probably be Gloria Bell, I think, if I had to um, make a shot across the bow and try to. get as many people because it's it's a gentle movie it's about a gentle character it's you know moms would like it um i don't know men would like it but i don't care what men like anymore um but yeah like it's a delightful movie and it was uh a shot for shot remake of uh, a film from a couple years ago called gloria um directed by the same director he's a um, Chilean director. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Uh, but it stars Julianne Moore. And it's a really... And John Turturro. And John Turturro, yeah. Um, and it is a really fantastic movie. It's this is this amazing um, portrait of a middle-aged woman. And she's not drawn as pathetic. Um, and uh, one of the things that I found really interesting um, was that when you see her, like you see different scenes from her life, and, um, and Julianne Moore and the director and John Turturro were at the Q&A. And she said that we see her with her co-workers. We see her with her partner. We see her with her children. We see her out in the world. But we are the only people who see her as, an, as a whole person because all of those other relationships, she only relates to them as a mom or a co-worker. And I kind of thought, like, that's, a, that's actually... Very true. Like, and that's how we experience everybody. Because I always tell my friends, like, if you saw me at work, the way, like, I'm a different, I'm not a different person, I'm not unrecognizable, but there is a different side to me um, that, depending on how you know me, you don't see all of those sides of me. And that is what Gloria is. And I think it's like, it's, it's truly a wonderful performance in a great movie. So I think anybody who saw it and didn't like it, I think they were um, seriously... Um, a serious misanthrope. Yeah. And even if that movie isn't your jam, you could watch that movie and agree with what we thought as we left the theater, which is just give that woman an award. Although that's the one thing that I'm sort of excited about, but also scared about. I'm, I'm excited about the best actress race now after because, the end of TIFF. But we also hear like movies that have, um, like the, the favorite, apparently, um, you know, they're trying to figure out whether or not Olivia Coleman should go for lead or supporting. Like there's so many other great performances by women that we haven't even seen yet. Um, so if Gloria Bell is, you know, if she's not... If that's not the best performance by Julia Moore is always in the conversation. Which People he, yeah, love her. Yes. But I'm saying yeah. if she doesn't win, if there's a better performance out there by a woman this year, then that just shows you how stacked the category is. Because yeah. she's absolutely amazing in this film. Is it stacked or is it just finally that there's almost as many good roles for women as men? But I've always found the best actress category in the Academy Awards to be way more interesting than the than the best um, actor. Yeah. Um, but... Julianne Moore even has a movie called Bel Canto, which I haven't seen. That's coming out this year too, so she might actually be uh, uh, be uh, diluting her own vote. But we'll see where that goes. But that's supposed to be a really strong performance too. So my movie that I would recommend to coworkers, and I'll have a runner-up. I would have also said Gloria, but I'm going to go with the People's Choice winner, Green Book, which I did not see. Yeah, many reasons why. Uh, 
I went into that movie thinking, eh, I'll probably like it, but mm-hmm. I'm not going to love it. I picked it, honestly, because it fit in my one of my holes. And I knew that I liked Marshall Ali. I knew that I've loved Vigo in some of the more, I will say, alternative, less likely to have a wide North American release stuff. Like, Ella Tree State is still one of the Vigo performances that I most enjoyed at the festival. Mm-hmm. So... I'll watch that him in anything. He's like, you know, that Frank's Red Hot Sauce. Uh, and I didn't even look to see who else was in it. Linda Cardellini was a nice surprise when it started. I was like, oh, yeah, she plays the wife. Uh, you don't know my feelings about her. Yeah, there's, there's, She's okay. there's a couple other uh, people. You know, you're kind of having a hey, it's a guy moment. But overall, it's really, it's those two dudes in a car for most of the movie once it gets rolling, right. pun intended. And... The subject matter aside, you could watch those two dudes in a car regardless. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Vigo character has like an eating thing, so he eats as much as you know mm-hmm. any two Brad Pitt characters in any <laughs> movie since yeah. uh, the original Oceans, where he started just shoving things in his mouth. Yep. Um, Jumbo shrimp. Marshala is regal and affected, and as he just entirely, he's a king. he he's a king. Mm-hmm. He sits on. One spoiler, his character does have, like, a small throne in his quarters, but every chair that man sits on, he sits on it like it is a throne. Well, don't you remember in the first season of... Um, um, Luke Cage. Luke Cage, where yeah. he's standing in front of that uh, picture of Biggie? Yeah. And the crown is on his head? Yeah. I mean, I know this phrase is overused right now, but he is really bringing some big dick energy. Mm-hmm. So BD. It's yeah. absolutely happening. And there is definitely, because the, the Green Book is a real thing that existed, which was a travel guide for people of color to be able to travel safely home, uh, to visit either family. Like if there was a lot of flight of people of color from the South to the North, honestly, to save their lives. Yeah. But it was like restaurants and hotels and places where you could safely uh, go. So with the rise of, um, let's say questionable law enforcement and or the Klan, often the same folks back then. And they're like, well, actually, they still have sundown towns, but even like sundown towns. That comes up in the movie, mm-hmm. sundown town, yeah. someplace where you could not be after dark yeah. or you would get murdered. They still exist. Yeah. So uh, this was a travel guide so that people knew where they could go and stay and eat and stay in a hotel and be safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was something in the Q&A, and I'm, I'm sure this one, the special features will be great. They said one of the places they shot actually was an old Green Book Hotel, and they didn't even know. They picked that place by accident. They met this gentleman who lived across the way right. for years, and he said, yeah, when I was you know, young, you know, Gladys Knight used to stay here, mm. Little Richard used to stay here. Like This is a, a completely trash establishment, right. and you think some of the biggest names in entertainment had to stay at this place where you probably wouldn't, wouldn't yeah. send your worst enemy to spend a night. Yeah. But they were able to have a safe night, stay there, make their money as they were traveling through the South. So that's a sort of a sub uh, story throughout the whole thing. If you know nothing about the Green Book, I could see people watching this and thinking that this is a concoction of the film mm-hmm. and not an actual real document that existed and saved many black lives for people who, you know, moved north but then had to go home to, like, go to a grandparent's funeral or deal with some, you know, relative stuff or whatever and then try to travel safely back north or for entertainers to travel. This is a real thing. And there was even some talk in the current administration when laws started to get real weird about actually recreating a green book or having some sort of website to do something similar for certain states where, you know, for not just people of color, but trans people, LGBTQ, yeah. to have some kind of document to know yeah. places where you're 100% safe because that's the world we're living in again right now. So it's timely, but any of the conflict or the danger, they ease, they really pump the brakes on that. Again, another good driving pun. I'm giving myself a pat mm-hmm. on the back. Yeah, yeah, I know. So. Uh, so that if you are not a person of color, you aren't too uncomfortable. Right. So a lot of movies have almost like sort of torture porn of how people of other are treated. You don't necessarily have in this. So it gives you a taste 
but not too much, which right. is why people could leave that movie feeling kind of happy. Right. Oh. Like this sort of driving Miss Daisy inverse friendship. Yeah, that's kind of, but that's kind of racism. what the movie... It has a light hand, and in, with any two other actors, I would say this was triacle mm-hmm. and trash, but with the two of them, they both managed to bring, uh, God help me, gravitas to mm-hmm. it that lets you leave feeling like you experienced a bit of hope. It was just, it was good. And the music was great. Uh, they brought out on stage as well the, the Wait, young composer who did the score. Is it jazzy though? Uh, it's, it's a lot of things. More on the classical tip. Yeah. Uh, but he was also the hand double for Maharshala. So they actually had a young uh, black composer mm-hmm. do the score and, and then be the pianist, hand right? double. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So again, the music is great. But there's a mix of like sort of Kind of more popular and this pianist had a hand. Yeah. Du- this pianist had a hand double. Oh, the jokes write themselves. They really do. But yeah, it was just <laughs> it was just great. And one of the co-writers of the script is the son of the character that the Vigo. Yes, I heard uh, that. Whatever is based on like yeah, it's all they they have a prepackaged go to market award season story to tell here. Uh, they can hit all quadrants like nostalgia, whatever, mm-hmm. solving racism, mm-hmm. you know, through a road trip. I think this one is definitely, especially, you know, any movie that wins a People's Choice Award at TIFF, except for the really small ones like Where Do We Go From Here or Bell, anyone that's big usually gets at least uh, to be part of the conversation during award season. So recommending this to someone at work is a pretty safe bet. And it's definitely put it on, like it's it's winning, it has put it on my radar. So um, I otherwise would not have seen it, but now I'm going to kind of have to see it. And then my backup is Quincy. Uh, which uh, has a lot of music as well. Uh, the documentary about Quincy Jones, which will be on Netflix, Netflix yeah. September 21st, so probably by the time I edit this bitch. And well, it's just great. Yeah, it's Friday. Yeah, it, the music is all Quincy. And that's all I'll tell you about it because it's going to be on Netflix. It, there's no effort to see this. Just watch it. It's good. The, well, I mean, <laughs> I will watch it. Um <clears throat> Sorry, that was an awkward pause. I, there was an awkward I pause. I saw you scrolling up, and I thought that... Uh, well, no, I was just going to say... We well, no, the already, screen brightened, and then yeah. I got confused. We did the what we would recommend to someone that we work with. Uh, now we're going to do the what are you most likely to watch again? Uh, definitely Widows. Me too, 100%. Um, that is a... Widows is what they call a banger. It is. Um, and I have listened to... Um, like an, I was listening to a podcast and they have like an audio excerpt from Widows and oh my god I don't even remember that specific line I was so enthralled and so excited um, but I feel like I lost a lot first of all I've never seen a movie well that's a lie yeah, I probably have but to have this many principal uh, characters to have them all have backstories to have them interact you know and some characters interact uh, with more characters than others but like the world building in this movie is so amazing, and you know, you know, you hate to like, you know, compare like compare apples to to oranges, but this is the movie Heat should have been. Well, this is the movie that Ocean's Eight should have been. Like, you know, no, it, no, no, that was like a light touch. No, but hear me out, because thematically it's so similar. Because there's this, you know, that that line that. Uh, that uh, Viola Davis says that nobody thinks we have the balls to pull this off. That was sort of like the, the subtext or the text in Ocean's 8 is that the fact that there were women let them have, like it made them invisible, which, you know, I thought it did fairly well. But I mean, let's be honest, in Ocean's 8, the heist kind of went off without any kind of hitches. Um, but this movie, like it was so gritty and visceral and the sweat and the weight of the bags, like everything is just like, this is not easy it's not a romp like what they're doing is (laughs) is like it's intense it is work and the way that they plan the job like you know i love kate blanchett but in ocean's eight all she did was lean in a door frame like these (laughs) these bitches are going through it like it's just you know the bulging muscles and they're hitting the heavy bag and they're carrying those bags and they're breathing hard and they're struggling and it is like it is everything and that's just you know the, the heist is just a small portion of the movie it's like everything that you have to put in place to get to the heist and the and the payoff and the relationships and you know and i I their lives are much more like real women's lives i mean there was that fantastic moment where 
um, I think it was other Elizabeth. It was other Elizabeth Debicki who I like. Finally, like she's getting some recognition because I've loved her for years. Um, but uh, when she says it's either her or Michelle Rodriguez who says to Viola Davis, "Your lives aren't like ours." So there's this acknowledgement because Viola Davis is wealthy and doesn't have any young children, um, and you know she's very affluent, as in wealthy, but. Often in movies, all women are painted the same. So for a movie to call attention to the way that these women's lives are different, they're on different socioeconomic rungs, they have different lives. And to acknowledge it and to make a character, to actually make that textual is something that we hardly ever see. And this is, you know, in a movie that, you know, and I'm not even putting it down to, to Gillian Flynn. Like, I think it's also Steve, um, Steve McQueen's influence. But these little things that don't have to be part of a heist movie make it in and it just gives us all this texture and all this richness it's just i yeah i'm i'm very 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 hyped on on widows and there were funny moments there were beautiful moments yeah some of the shots in this thing oh there are shots where i i also can't wait for this to come out either on netflix or video so i can pause certain scenes like that one perfect shot site there's a couple of films i saw that could have multiple options i would say widows and kursk which we yeah both didn't like but but it's a, there are some shots beautiful shots that are amazing but in terms of beautiful shots because of steve mcqueen's you know uh, background and being like a visual artist and a, yeah and that a commercial artist. is it's beautiful to look at the whole drive from the one neighborhood to the other scene and it's not every, a real and it's in real time and camera outside single, yeah like yeah. film nerd I've talked to, yeah. that's their favorite scene. Yeah, that's my favorite. Well, that's my second favorite scene in the movie. But there's, it's just, it's a banger. It's a great girls' night out, and then you and your ladies are going to want to go out and fuck some shit up. Yeah, you're going to want to like, just, and it's not even like they're pulling off one last job. And no. that's why I like it too. Like this, the stakes are real. It's not like, you know, in, in a lot of movies where someone's pulling a heist, the stakes are really rather low it's like oh, we can do this this is what we do we just got out of jail i want to pull off this job this is there are consequences to not pulling off the job stakes you, is high even if you don't want to get into it you got to get into it there's no choice yeah and you know let's not forget the fellows liam neeson is Ugh. doing like basically what he's been doing for the past he's so five rakish and, uh, yeah he's so can, handsome he for, could get it yep he's a great profile and dana kalua and brian tyree henry are menacing entertainment. Colin Farrell, I... He's great. Great. Absolutely great. And Robert Duvall's like chewing some scenery trying yeah. to get yet another Oscar nomination. He probably will because Oscar loves old white dudes. Yep. And overall, just fantastic. Yeah, I... I is It's thrilling. It's I would recommend this movie thrill. to anybody who likes movies but like not to co-workers just because of the violence. Yeah, and... Me, and There's me, a couple of scenes of like some pretty violent shit. And here's the thing too... I would be okay with somebody saying to me, oh, I didn't really like Gloria Bell. If someone told me they didn't like Widows... I'd punch him in the face. Yeah, like, we would have beef, so that's why I wouldn't recommend it to somebody <laughs> who... Like, I... Because I don't want to hear it. It's perfect, and I won't hear anything against it, so... I, yeah, so I'm not going to recommend it, because I don't want to hear, oh, I didn't really like it. Fuck yourself. Yeah, I love Widows. And it was... Because we, you know, t- saw the, the trailer and loved it, and this movie... Uh, lived up to exceeded the trailer. Yep. Never happens. Never happens. Never happens. Yep. When a trailer is that good, the movie's never better. This is the exception. And I never watch a trailer after I've seen the movie. We just watched we, it, and it's better. The trailer's better after having seen the movie. I got will watch the trailer again and again and again. Yeah. Ugh, those scenes. So good. <laughs> so yeah, widows. I was right. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I was right. Well, we were Plus, right. I I tweeted about it months before anybody was talking about. Even like film Twitter was talking about it. We recorded a full episode basically about a fucking trailer. The trailer. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. No. Yeah, we were right. So, uh, what was good but once was enough? So here's the thing, listener. Uh, the festival often brings you films that are so uh, oh, harrowing or emotional, or it's like I saw it, but if I'm hungover on a Sunday and I feel like watching something on, you know, Netflix or something else, sometimes I'll rewatch a film that I've watched and enjoyed. But there's certain films that I'm like, you know what? I don't need to watch that again. Uh, for me, that movie is probably Working Woman. It wasn't even that harrowing, but it was just, it was almost too real. Israeli film uh, directed by a very intense director uh, whose name I can't remember now. And it just tells the story of this woman who, you know, takes a job and uh, gets an opportunity for advancement. 
and gets a promotion and uh, acquits herself very well. Uh, unfortunately, because it's very realistic, all of those things underneath the subtext is that her boss wants to bone her, mm. and eventually the situation becomes untenable. I don't want to say any more than that. All I can say is that after I watched that movie, I legit had to go and just sit alone up really? in the like members lounge. And like it's not like exactly that thing's happening, but just having that moment of like, no matter how good I am at this job, I can't stay here either because yeah. they won't let me or it's not gonna be okay. It's just it's so maddening. It's it's so maddening and frustrating and it just brought up a lot of shit. And it was done so well. I think that's why it did. Mm-hmm. So I the movie was great. The performances were all good. Uh, if you're into Israeli film, Working Woman, like, see if you can find it. Uh, it was a Jane Shuttle pick, I'm pretty sure. Uh, but, yeah, it just kind of, like, I don't want to go through that again. <laughs> so, like, other years, it's often things that are much more, you know, harrowing or violent or, you know, there's a lot of rape. I think I saw at least... Oh, Three or four movies with like non-consensual sex or attempts of non-consensual sex. But I saw no rape in this year. That's yeah, good for me. Oh wow, I I saw a few assaults mm-hmm. in the, well. of the sexual nature. Yeah. Uh, so for me, that movie would probably be American Dharma, and so that's the Errol Moore's film, uh, and Steve Bannon is at the center. Oh. But here's the thing. First of all, I wouldn't have seen it if it weren't Errol Moore's, uh, and what. As a liberal, we're also, um, we can tend to be, uh, you know, we want our own echo chamber. We want everyone to agree with us and to like our posts and to just uh, reaffirm how we see the world. And I've had this ongoing, um, I don't know if it's an existential crisis, but because the um, results of the U.S. election were so close and, you know, you have Brexit and you have this rise of neo-fascism all over the world, it actually made me question my own uh, assumptions about the world. And I'm thinking, well, I know I'm right, but somebody on the other side knows they're right too. So it actually made, if we can be, if you know, literally half of the voting um, world can have uh, views that are diametrically opposed to mine or can hold their nose and vote for a certain party, I begin to question what right is. So that's just something that I've been dealing and struggling with and thinking about uh, for the last year and a half. Um, and, you know, I, I uh, love the keep, well, it used to be keeping it 1600. Now it's Pod Save America. And, you know, smart liberals are like, you know, we need to listen to what they're saying on the other side. We need to, we need to watch Fox News. We need to go to Breitbart. We need to know what they're saying because, you know, they, because if you just ignore it, it doesn't make it go away. So I decided to give this a try. And you have Steve Bannon, who, you know, is smart. He doesn't have a coherent message. Uh, he just seems to want to foment chaos, but without a, um, like a new world order after it. But I've never stopped to listen to speak, uh, to, to listen to him speak. So that's what this movie did for me. So he's the unsexy child of Loki and Killmonger. Well, yeah, exactly. But he also doesn't recognize, you know, because he's always taught, like his whole thing is that he wants the the working um, people of America, white people, huh, um, to to seize control um, of the levers of power and to get rid of the elites. Well, guess what? You're a fucking elite. But he doesn't have any plan for what this is supposed to look like. So you can understand how, to an underclass, why this is a very empowering message. But even like all over the world, this happened all over the world where people were colonized. Once the colonizers left, people assumed power, but they don't, there's no blueprint. Um, but I thought it was very, um, and I kind of liken it to this, um, because uh, it's like going swimming, like you're learning how to swim, and the person who's teaching you how to swim is holding you up with hands underwater so you don't think you're going to drown. That's how I feel about Errol Morris. I knew I was going to be in the hands of a filmmaker whose views hew very close to mine, but he's also a great documentarian. So I knew that he would give me probably the best documentary of Steve Bannon and probably the only one I could ever stomach. Um, he didn't use the Interatron 
No, he did not. Which is which, which was, makes people empathize with the. Yeah, uh, he did. It. He I, shot him. I heard from somebody else that like Dutch angle sort yes. of horror. But I don't. Yeah, but I don't think of. it. But but to me, it didn't lead to uh, to. Uh, Empathy. I think the the Interatron leads to empathy. Is, is someone saying otherwise? No, no. They're saying that he didn't use the Interatron because the Interatron leads to right. empathy. Right. Yes. Yes. So he didn't want. Yes. To yeah. shoot him with that. Yeah. He and yeah. there were a lot of uh, very quick edits. Uh, like in the course of like ten seconds, you'd have about five or six angles. It was very. Um, it was. But when you think about his message and about um, his plans. It was, you know, the filmmaking sort of mirrored this sort of scatter shot. You know, I have a bit of philosophy from this. I have a bit of philosophy from this. But there was no coherent message. Um, and, you know, and, and somebody asked um, Errol Morris at the end, like, like, what is your sense of Steve Bannon? And he's like, my, but that's exactly what he said, is that there is no, like, he, he doesn't have a cohesive um, theory that goes from, from A to Z. It's just he has a little bit of this, a little bit of, you know, he's a, you know, he, uh, like a bit of Hollywood films, a bit of like Eastern philosophy, but it's all over the place and it doesn't make any sense. But I needed to sit to sit down and to hear it for myself. And I'm glad that I did. He's smart enough and evil enough to know that he can't ever truly articulate what he really he believes. Wants. Yes. Or wants or what his goals which is, are. Which is what he wants. He, he wants all black and brown people gone is what he wants. But he wraps it in this sort of um, uh, almost anarchistic or libertarian worldview is like we need to rise up and seize the levers of power because the people in control um, aren't uh, they're not representing our interests but these are the people who's he's in bed with Trump so I don't know who he thinks Donald Trump is but yeah he knows who his audience is for sure what I understand more and more is the kind of people throughout my life that have said to me well you're not really black they yeah. are the kind of people who if they are conservative <clears throat> could vote for somebody who's being uh, puppeteered by Bannon and Putin and feels that way because they think what they're voting for isn't the you know annihilation of people yeah. who look like me. Mm-hmm. They think what they're voting for is what their idea of black is. Yeah. And they think telling me that is a fucking compliment. Compliment. So... That's the other problem. Like to understand the people who can still vote for um, people who are, you know, low key, high key, dog whistle, whatever, um, saying, well, good people are okay, but anybody who's trying to get into our country has more than a paper bag tan, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, shouldn't be here. Uh, That is really. Those they're not all air quotes bad people. They're people that I've had in my life. They're people that up until this past election, I probably would have said, well, they're friends. Mm-hmm. But in the same way that they would say to me, well, you're not really black. In the past, I would have said, well, you're not really racist. <laughs> I just would have said it in my head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But now, yeah, you can say it all out. <laughs> I can. I would. I actually wouldn't say it out loud because they actually are. Yeah. They just don't realize it. The minute you're going to say, listener, to your friend of color, well, you're not really, insert whatever the color is here, uh, you're racist. Yeah, or you're not like other, you know, well, first of all, we're not a monolith. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, so that's, that's what that is. Yeah, so, so that's a movie that I would, uh, I never need to see it again. I yeah. got it, but, I'm, but I'm, yeah. I am not upset that I saw it. Yeah. I'm very glad that I saw it. So initially our agenda for this evening had a whole bunch of stuff about um, Tiff and the organization and what got better about the process and whatever. I think we should do that another time. Yeah, because because we'll leave all of that to like yeah. uh, our follow up post Tiff. And episode. there's no primacy to that. Like you know that's for yeah. next Tiff. You have, this is like you want to know. You have eleven and a half months to what get your movies sorted that we saw that you should also see. So I think I'm just going to go through a quick list of other things that I would recommend. Yep. Because they were good. Float like a butterfly actually won one of the awards. Oh, did oh um, in its program. I don't know if it was in his program or if it was the Discover the Freshy Award. What of oh. those other words? Anyway, Fault Like a Butterfly was good and, you know, great backstory. The, you know, director married her, production designer while they were here. Because, yeah. yay, ladies. They, they can get, and they can get married in Toronto. Yeah, they had one of, like, the best stories. They're Irish. Ever. Yeah, they were still here for the award ceremony because they were basically having their honeymoon, honeymoon here. Yeah. Yeah, so that was good. Rafiki, which did well at Sundance. If you like ladies loving ladies and just beautiful visual design and you're okay with subtitles, that was good too. I can read. 
if Beale Street could talk, Jerry. if Beale Street could talk, is definitely going to be in the conversation for award season. It was beautiful. Uh, Barry Jenkins was adorable on screen. Uh, Regina King may possibly get an Oscar nom and oh supporting character yeah, for that. I, I love Regina King. Um, Stefan James, uh, Toronto kid, did great in it. He was in Floyd's movie across the line. Yeah, yeah. Front of the podcast. I've rubbed shoulders with him. Yeah. So he was great. Honestly, everyone was great. Tana uh, Parrish as the sister. Had in, there was a barn burner of a scene with all of the family in a one room near the beginning of the movie that really everybody gets to shine in, but the sister, uh, played by Tana, is just like, it's amazing. But yes, beautiful. Great story. You should watch it. I talked to multiple uh, people of non-color after the movie who legit said that they were reading If Beale Street Could Talk after seeing it. So that's how good that was. Uh, And again, I'm only going to talk about things I like, so I'm not going to talk about things I didn't like. You can figure it out if you check my schedule. Uh, Maria Baikalis was great. She was bringing that big diva energy. Kind of made me want to watch the opera scene in Philadelphia again because they 100% used that song at some point in the movie. Uh, Driven was way better than I thought it would be, and not just because I 100% want to uh, be in the backseat of a DeLorean with the lead pace at some oh, point Oh, that in my was life. The, uh, the, the DeLorean. Okay. Yeah. Oh, the, okay, that's good to know. But Sudeikis and Judy Greer didn't just steal the movie. They also stole the Q&A. It was oh, probably okay. one of the best Q&As ever. When you have funny people in a Q&A, God, it just yes. it was so good. Yeah. So good. Yeah, it was fantastic. The Weeknd. Um, yep. Stella Maggie, the woman who also directed uh, Gina the Joneses, which was produced by yep. a friend of the podcast, Floyd Kane. Uh, I liked it. It's very, like, if you like those sort of uh, bomb back, uh Yeah, like, in the whole movies. Type movies. Like, it's like that, but it's just all people of color. Yeah, the movie's basically a bottle episode, is yeah. what it is. Just, like, five characters in one place for the entire movie. Yeah. For the most part. Uh, Boy Erased, I still liked... Uh, I have a bias towards Joel Edgerton. Mm-hmm. I like Joel Edgerton because he's very mm-hmm. attractive and he's. Oh, I don't. Uh, well, I mean, that's he was neither bringing, here nor there. But I don't find that he. But I also attractive. I really liked uh, Felony, the first movie he directed. Uh, a lot of people love The Gift. So he's like gift. he's yeah. like growing into like a oh, decent he's, director. He's legit, and unlike some people. <clears throat> Bradley, uh, who yeah. are just choosing to direct some a story that's been told very well multiple times yeah. before, uh, basically but copying over the other kid's shoulder. He's doing like some weird shit yeah. to like build his craft, and that is also the movie where the only movie I asked a question to Q and A this year, and he uh, told me not only did he say it was a good question, he gave me like a single finger gun. <laughs> And said where? that was actually where a, did he put the single finger gun? I wish. Uh, he also said that Woody was. Hole? He said it was a huge <laughs> debate when they were editing the movie. So like, I literally asked like a good question. Sorry, what was the question? Uh, I don't want to spoil it. Oh, okay. But it's related to how they sort of uh, the order of the information you get at the end of the movie. Okay. And I went up to him after, shook him hand, shook his hand, told him I met him once at a coffee shop when he was in town, and he was pretending that he was just here visiting friends and was just a normal, handsome man and not, like, an actual actor. And he, like, kept trying to talk to me, although other people were lining up to talk to him, and I had, like, a moment of thinking, oh, It's happening. It's happening. But, you know, it's just, he's just charming because that's his job. And he's Aust- Australians are very nice people. They are. They really are. They're, they, like, the friendliest people in the world. Yeah. But his hands, oh my god, they're just so big. Anyway, point is, I like Boy Race, but I don't know if I just like it because of Joe Legend. Mm. Um, the Grizzlies, I loved it. I fucking love that movie. That was like almost my number one. Uh, that ended up being so much more than just Mighty Ducks with Lacrosse because the movie has this whole... Um, and it they do actually warn you in the movie, and even the producers warned people before it started... There's like a heavy uh, through line around suicide. So if that is mm-hmm. not trigger. your jam, if trigger you're not warning. okay, yeah. um, it's not like there's just one person. Like it's in those yeah. communities, it, it's so prevalent because of the conditions, because what is so this? many of their parents went through residential schools. I was going to say, is it First whatever. Nations? Yeah. But I guess it is. And uh, yeah. the process, we know. But it? that movie was fantastic. Is it Canadian? Yeah. yeah. But like it's a lady who directed it. It was a white lady who directed, but she like partnered with these two um, producers from that community. Okay. It's based on the real people. Uh, it's 
they really did a lot of work to make it. So it's beautiful, but kind of stark because like it'd be hard to make a bad looking movie shot up there. Yeah. But you also see the conditions many of the characters live in. The performances to a person are some of the best performances I saw at the festival. Even uh, Boo Boo Stewart, you may know him as Seth Clearwater from the Twilight movies. His character has like this atrocious home life. But he's just one of many characters that, much like Widows, I would say next to Widows, Grizzlies is the movie where they did the best job building and backstories oh, for cool. all the characters. It was, and the music was amazing. It was like a mix of sort of like, you know, new hip hop and um, throat singers and stuff. They said they brought a lot of throat singers who'd never even been in a recording studio down to Toronto to work with other artists um, like Tanya Tagak and uh, people from. Uh, Trap Called Red and other things to it was probably one of my favorite soundtracks next to Quincy and uh, Green Book so that was really good and The Wedding Guest I liked the first third of that movie so much and that's all I'm going to say also Deb Patel is still <clears throat> growing up to be a fine young mm-hmm. man and uh, That Time of Year the Paprika Steen yeah but I won't talk about it because you probably will. Yep. And I will say my surprise last movie. I was supposed to see Museo at the end or second last. And then last minute, a friend that I worked with at a previous job got tickets to see the Jeremiah Terminator Leroy, the last oh. gala, which wasn't great. But it doesn't. Need I did like, like that there were complicated, weird, not likable roles for two women in a right. movie. Yeah. So I feel like there was a good movie slash story there, but because it was based on the book written by the person who was the impersonator, yeah. you're not going to get an even story. You really needed the life rights from both people to craft a good story, and that's all I'll say about it except... and But there's also a great... Uh, not great, but there's a perfectly good documentary called the JT Leroy story. Yeah. It's only a couple of years old that has the principles in it, so I don't need to see... It's the Dogtown Paradox. Why yeah. did I need a fictional yeah. Dogtown movie when that documentary was so fucking good? Yeah, like I don't... Yeah, so I wouldn't see it because I know the story, so it's it wouldn't uh, it wouldn't appeal. So give and me your Christ- quick list. Uh, so not a, not a huge list, uh, which would give me a couple of time, a little time to go into a movie which I absolutely hated, um, and I think it needs to be called it. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, uh, I really loved that time of year. It was, um, uh, and it actually was much better than I thought it would be. I'm so happy it was my last movie. So yes. thank you. I would have never picked it without you. And it was like Festin, but without the, without the, uh, the, uh, the lack of humanity. So they, in the, the setup of the movie is, you know, they're in Denmark. There is a family that comes together, uh, for Christmas Eve and, uh, and it's a fairly large family that doesn't necessarily see a lot of each other. Um, and I love the way the movie begins. It's like a series of voicemails uh, about what people will be bringing or who will be coming. Um, but it, it plays out in a very real way. Like it's not, it's not broadly comic, but it is funny. Um, the performances are very lived in, um, and uh, so Pepper Christine uh, started it and and directed it, and it was all shot on location in this house. And um, the house actually had two attics, which is like part of the plot. Um, but you know, they just sort of like hold up in this in this place and shot this wonderful movie. And they were, uh, and this isn't to appeal to a North American audience. The movie has a lot of Christmas songs that are, you know, like like Elvis Christmas carols. Um, and in Denmark, like, they listen to, like, American Christmas carols. And, you know, we can all relate uh, to family gatherings. So the fact that it's Christmas, because um, I was thinking about this, like, Christmas is one of the few religious holidays that is celebrated, uh, like, and I'm not discounting Islam, obviously, but it's in sort of Western countries, there are so many countries that celebrate Christmas. So in North America or in Europe or in Australia, like this movie um, has, um, it will it will resonate with a lot of cinema goers because you will be able to uh, recognize yourself or your family somewhere in this movie. Um, and I just thought it was absolutely great. And, you know, and... So were they there for your screen? Yes, they were, uh, so... Uh, 
Paprika Steen was there, and the movie's producer was there. And uh, so she was talking, and she said, you know, my producer, who's also my ex-husband, and everyone's like, ah! Because, uh, you know, they have this great working relationship, because she wasn't working, and he's like, you have to make something. Um, and also the boy who was her daughter's uh, boyfriend, who we see on the, uh, on the video screen, like that cute blonde boy, mm-hmm. that's their son. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, then the woman who played her sister, the priest, uh, she was talking about the editor, and the editor is her ex-husband. So apparently Danes make good divorcees. Um, but in a way, the movie is sort of mirroring the film in that you're bringing all these people together yep. for a lo- prolonged period, and it will get uncomfortable at some point. Yes, but it doesn't... I love the fact that the... You know, there's not... The clashes are organic. You could see these things happening in real life. If you've ever been around, like feuding family members. I really haven't because my family really get along well, but um, I, I understand like where this comes from. It seems very, very real. Um, and it's, it, it's delightful. And it's one of the, you know, so, you know, that time of year, uh, Gloria Bell, Float Like a Butterfly, uh, The Weeknd, uh, Widows. These are the movies that I, that I liked the most. And they're the movies that either uh, have both a female filmmaker or a, or female protagonists. Um, the, I saw Vita in Virginia, which wasn't any good, and it was with Elizabeth Debicki, so thank God for Widows, uh, which was made by a female filmmaker about two women, but it was, it was dull as, as dirt. Um, uh, I also, um, we already talked about Gloria Bell, which I like. Um, this movie called Angelo, which I don't think you saw. No. So that was the one about the court more. Oh, I almost saw it. So this is one of the few movies that it, I've walked out of. It doesn't have distribution yet, though. It doesn't distribution. So deserve- we don't want to... Do we want to... It's... So let me explain why um, my dislike for the movie. Uh, there were a couple of things that should have tipped me off uh, to begin with. Um, so the, the filmmaker came out, and he says, I don't care whether you like this movie or not. And I'm like, okay. And then he said, I'm just happy. Like, I'm just happy to be here. And I was like, okay, that's fine, but you've already, you've already got my guard up. Um, the movie is, uh, so it's a story about this, uh, this African uh, child who was enslaved in Vienna uh, through, different, through three different stages of his life. So it's broken down into three different acts. Even the act breaks are excruciating. Like, you know, they'll have one. So the first act begins with a big number one. And that image and some, like, annoying music st- it probably lingers for about 20 seconds, so already it's already trying my patience. It is a series of very long takes, but not long takes um, that lead to anything. And then I found out later that this uh, that the director actually worked with Michael Haneke. And then I was Ugh. like, okay, because if you want to see someone shoot uh, the opposite side of the street with nothing going on for like half an hour, like this is the kind of take. So I, it tried my patience. And then at the center, you have a character who has um, almost, well, he has no agency because he's enslaved, but he also doesn't speak. So you have no in, uh, no insight into his interior life. And this will be a spoiler, and I don't care, because this part of the movie, it enraged me. And it, it was actually kind of funny, because I was sitting behind the, um, the actor who plays um, Angelo uh, when he's a young, like a young, in his 20s. Um, and there was a scene where he is with a woman. And the scene is not really a love story. Like, like it's not a love scene, like they were having a conversation. But he gets out of bed, and just out of nowhere, like, I was, I was actually like, did I actually see this? Do you of, see his penis? You see an erect penis Ooh. Po- popping up. No. <laughs> well, no, I was just I was yeah. having this conversation yes. with someone at TIFF. It's so rare to actually see yes. erect male penises. You see them flaccid before or after. Yes, but it was but fully you erect. you rarely see an popping erect Popping up one. from the bottom of the screen. And all I could think was, this is just the commodification of a black male body. It doesn't have any place in the scene. It's barely, like, it, and it almost looks... To me, as though... Well, now you've ruined it for me. <laughs> but it, to me, the way that it's framed, it's almost as though they got this... Um, incidentally, like, it, the actor got excited, so they panned the camera down, because it didn't... It wasn't, fr- it wasn't in the center of the frame, and it wasn't a sexual situation. And I just thought, this is really... I'm going to say that it's hard to... Re- yeah, it get, was hard. Yeah, you're right. Get that on film accidentally. It probably involved 
some sort of device in a ring but and no, whatever. So, so famously in Angels and Insects, uh, Douglas Henshaw popped a boner because uh, he was having incest with his movie sister. And then he's putting his pants back on and his, his flaccid penis is going down. But the actor actually, that, was, that actually happened. But, you know, they decided that it made sense in the movie. Um, I'm sorry, listener. Yeah. Okay. We'll we'll move, we'll we'll get anyway, we'll get Angela. off the penis. Yeah. I hate I hate Angela. And, and I left uh, when the third act uh, started. I I was being respectful to my fellow moviegoers. Yeah. And I waited, and then I I left, and uh, yeah, I hated it. And that's it. Oh um, yeah, because I uh, that was you know we talked about the things that we saw uh, in common. I talked about. American Dharma, we talked about Angelo, we talked about The Weeknd, yeah, talked about Beat in Virginia, Widows. Um, no, it's good. Kursk, uh, which was a disappointment. It was a... Uh, but looked good. Yeah, it was... I mean, there's one shot. It was as pretty as Matthias Schoenhardt's yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it's, cheekbones. The movie is really lackluster, given the the filmmaker and the people who are in it and the story that it's telling. But visually. Yeah. But it's, you know what, it's not... Um, it's very inert. Um and I much yeah. like the submarine. Yeah, I was, I was, I was disappointed. Yeah, but so that's, that's it, it listener. Uh, you got to hear about what we enjoyed this year, and I'm assuming that we'll be taking this right again next year. Um, <laughs> I you know, guess so. And barring do you know death or dismemberment, and uh, that's it. Yeah. We'll follow up with our follow up post tiff episode, which will be no time soon. Uh, which will be more about the behind the scenes, the bitching, the process, and surprise uh, escalators that function this year. Oh, that was that was the biggest su- surprise. And then the next time we can the also- biggest twist of the festival was that that fucking escalator worked all week. And we can also talk about the movies that we catch up on that are available on other platforms uh, very shortly after TIFF or coming out soon, yeah, or have come out already. Yeah, yeah. there are a so, lot this year. Uh, stay safe. Uh, go watch a Captain Marvel trailer. Yeah. Uh, and the Widows trailer. Yeah. As many times as you can. Ready yourself for Widows. You will You're not want ready. to see this movie. You ain't ready. Identical. Oh my God. It's so good. All right. We out. <laughs>